1: Hello, Face the Nation podcast listeners, it's Margaret Brennan. In our latest Twitter space, we spoke with the Cook Political Report's Amy Walter about how natural disasters can become defining moments for both state politicians and presidents. Plus, we get Amy's perspective on our most pressing midterm questions. We hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Hello, Twitter spaces and hello amy walters i'm so glad to have this conversation today on the latest face the nation twitter space um amy can you hear me i can hi margaret hi.
2: we are well, we are um, so close and so far away <laughs> i i don't see you i hear you and i'm near you but i'm not there but this is amazing how this works
1: isn't it? Yeah. Well, hope, hopefully. I, I think it's cool to have this uh, kind of conversation at this moment, yes. too, because I know um, you've been super busy lately. I've been reading your transcripts, but the um, the hurricane that's hitting Florida is changing everything for us in the news business, too, because we're adjusting as this storm right. takes turns. But we've already seen state of emergency declared in a number of states. As far as Virginia, obviously, Florida is dealing with this natural disaster in a very real way and i know you've covered these in the past how these moments can really define a governor who is the chief executive of the state in particular the frontline response all of this happening at a key moment we are just what six six weeks away from the midterms that's right Um, even a
2: little less than six weeks a little less i know yeah
1: um So how do you, yeah, how do you calculate this? Like, what is the impact politically? So you're exactly right. We've had a couple of recent
2: examples. Um, 2012, of course, it was Superstorm and uh, Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, that hit New York and New Jersey literally days before that election. Mm -hmm. And I think that event had the impact not really on the actual election of the president, who obviously it was Barack Obama who was up for re-election, but on the political prospects for Chris Christie. It was Chris Christie who got a great deal of attention for his work in helping to mitigate the impacts of that storm, you know, for his leadership on that. And at the same time, remember, there were a lot of Republicans who were upset with Chris Christie's decision, again, so close to the election, to be photographed working closely with the Democratic president. And this idea of, oh, my gosh, I remember after the election it was, well, Chris Christie, he hurt you know Mitt Romney's chances because he gave uh, Obama cover, and um, uh, and people listening
1: and, are going, "Is politics really that petty?" And you're and, saying, "Yes." Why? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> why? Yes, it is.
2: Um, now, for somebody again, like the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, he's got short and long term uh, priorities, and he's mm-hmm. got, he's on the ballot in the short term. It, yep, he's up for re-election this year. But obviously, as you well know, and many of our listeners do as well, he is talked about a lot as a presidential candidate. So this gives him an opportunity not just to curry favor or cement his uh, legacy with his vo- his own voters in his own state going into election, but introducing himself to a lot of people who don't know him that well or only know him as this sort of, you know, political, literally just a political figure rather than a governing figure right. or somebody in a who's had to deal as an executive in a crisis.
1: Right. Because Florida is leading the national broadcasts uh, exactly. around the country right now. And people are learning the name of the, the Florida Republican governor. But uh, President Biden um, said today that Hurricane Ian could be the deadliest in Florida's history. DeSantis has said this is like a once in a 500 year flood. So he's being... You know, measured with a measuring stick on this very different scale um, in in terms of the complication potentially from this storm, right? And, and yeah, and what is the again, as as you know
2: very well, and probably many of our listeners do. <clears throat> excuse me, especially those who may live in and around hurricane zones or been in, involved in one that there's the short-term media focus on the damage and the suffering and the loss of life. And then the cameras go away and we move on to our next topic and hopefully not, but we could also move on to our next hurricane. Mm -hmm. But for people who are trying to rebuild this, these are year long efforts, years long efforts to get back um, their, uh, you know, sense of place um mm-hmm. literally where they're gonna live, but also just trying to recover um economically and psychologically from what they went through. So for the governor as well, this is not just a how did he do when the cameras were running, when the media attention was so you know, was right there every minute of the day, but how is he doing a year later, two years later, as Um, the folks who live in those areas are still trying to rebuild their lives. And that's also where he will be judged at a national level. If he decides that he's going to go for a higher office at some point, his ability to help the state come back Mm -hmm. will be as much a part of the story as how well he's doing in the immediate aftermath of this hurricane.
1: And that's that's a great point. We were talking with our environmental reporter earlier today, Ben Tracy, who was talking about this managed retreat question that happens um, within the climate change community and scientists who are looking at areas like Florida where um, maybe it's actually not a good idea to rebuild because of the changing dynamics out there. And those are hard calls for a governor to make in terms of Relationship with the business community, relationship with his own state and constituents, and even just the mechanics of it all. This is going to be a really challenging problem set for
2: absolutely all Florida <clears throat>
1: politicians.
2: For all Florida politicians or for a politician in any state that is dealing with these issues. And there are very few that aren't. I mean, obviously there are states that will not be hit by a hurricane, but even if you're in Colorado, what are you, or Arizona, what are you dealing with there? The real significant challenge of wildfires, of droughts, right? Should we be building in some of these places that have become now prone to wildfires, where again, changing climate, Changing realities of a snowpack, for example, in some of these states, means that places that folks are living right now are much mm-hmm. more dangerous than they were ten or twenty or fifty years ago. No politician wants to tell people they can't go back. Exactly, no, right? It's always we're going to be back and stronger than ever. Right? <laughs> Come on, no, I mean, right? yeah, we're yeah. filling the blank state strong. We can do this. um no one's gonna say that so it's really now a question of um whether or not one you build those communities to be more uh resilient Mm -hmm. and in some cases yeah there are things you can do and two there are questions about um the affordability of building in those places which the private market takes care of right if you say well you yeah. can you can build a house here it's going to cost you a hundred times more for your insurance exactly if did. you can
1: if you can even get the insurance as exactly. anyone with coastal property knows exactly these days. exactly
2: yeah. so other forces may take care of this in a way that the po- and politicians would love to have to not do that and say
1: <laughs> it's just the market not me great point um so on the back to the pettiness of politics um (laughs) you know we in these moments of disaster the state is in the lead but when it's of a certain scale the federal government is needed and you have this embrace at least within the past 48 hours um by the governor uh, of florida of the president of the united states who he has not had many kind things to say up to this (laughs) point right um and you have president biden really trying to put partisanship aside in his language, at least when he says things like this isn't a Florida crisis, this is an America crisis, we're all in it together.
2: Right. So how
1: how long does this disaster driven pause and partisanship actually last? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. I mean, we don't have to look much farther than actually our last a horrific crisis, which unfortunately continues to unfold, which is COVID. Yeah, There was that brief period of time, remember, when we were all on the same page, Democrats, Republicans, the scientific community, um, doctors, all, everyone seemed to be united around this um, idea that we're all in it together and we're going to defeat it together. And it didn't take that long before the sort of typical politics came to play I think it's the same will be true um with the hurricane which is it's a crisis that's unfolding right now people who are executives their job is to solve that crisis and then we move on to the next day week month and the whole new set of priorities especially for the national media especially for the president come into play and we go kind of back to are politics. Now, I do um, think though that it, where we're especially for many people who, who just aren't normally plugged into politics, as they're paying attention to what's unfolding in Florida right now, they're getting an opportunity to see an executive in a crisis mode. And sometimes these are the images that stick with us for the entirety of that person's career, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of what they do next. I mean, you know, the the image of President George W. Bush with the bullhorn right. at the ruins of the World Trade Center will is an iconic image that many people will associate with George W. Bush forever and ever and ever, right? And um, I think bookending that, of course, is the image of George W Bush looking over the damage done by hurricane Katrina mm-hmm. and this idea that he was aloof and unpre- and the administration was unprepared or uncaring and so both of those right his his right. entirety of his career book ended by those tragedies and the response by Americans to uh, literally just a picture an image mm-hmm. of how it seemed he was either literally on top of things or Mm -hmm. was too detached from
1: them to, um, you know, to, to properly lead. Mm -hmm. Well, I was, um, I've been reading some of what you've been writing about lately. And one of the phrases that stood out to me when you're describing kind of where we are as a country is that we are not just partisan. We are calcified,
2: right?
1: Basically the divide is just, it's the fissures are so deep. Um, i mean it, it, the hurricane a, a pandemic that killed hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. it wasn't enough to mm-hmm. overcome that that's right um it, what is just so different about where we are as a country right now and and how we frame our politics
2: you know i i have to give credit to that term calcification to um political scientists um two of whom i know uh personally John Sides and Lynn Babrick um the third whose name of course I'm blanking on and I don't know personally <laughs> but they were they they are writing a book about the they have written a book about the 2020 election that has not yet been released but this was one of the excerpts from that book and their their point is and it's it's um really a a, a very good one and it's one it, that I wrote about and and picked up on um as well is that look as you said events that at one point could move people beyond just 5149 but to you know 6040 right that mm-hmm. a big event happens where partisans or people who typically vote for democrats or typically vote for republicans one event is so dramatic that it gets them to reevaluate whether in that election just for that one election or for maybe a longer term period, reevaluate their partisan identity, right? Mm-hmm. So growing up in the 80s and 90s, there were big landslide elections, or 70s especially, big landslide elections where a president would capture um, you know, 85% of the electoral college vote or 75% of the electoral college vote that is not possible in this moment because even big events are not altering people's um, perceptions of their own partisan identity, right? They stick with it Mm -hmm. no matter what. And so what that means is that our elections now become, um, obviously they're, they're, they're more fraught. They are more existential with voters seeing not just, What's the direction I'd like to go to see the Mm -hmm. country going? But the fear, that's where so many voters are coming from, not hope, but fear that if the other side wins, it's going to mean that our country will be unrecognizable to me. Right. So what it also means, because then you have such narrow margins, right, if we're literally a 50-50 country, and sometimes we're 51-49, and sometimes we're (laughs) 48-52 the other way, that It is minor changes that can have a dramatic effect. 40,000 votes determined who the president of the United States was. About 50,000 votes determined control of the United States House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Um, So our politics becoming um, so much, uh, uh, as I said in this piece, it's like they are more predictable than ever because we know we're not going to see big swings from... Uh, year to year in terms of how voters perceive the two parties or how they vote for the two parties. They're both predictable, but yet really unpredictable because all it takes is 1,000 votes or 10,000 vote difference to go from Democrats in charge to Republicans in charge. And it also means that even if you lose, you know, there's a you're you're not going to reevaluate and say, boy, we lost that election. What did we do wrong? How should we go about improving our image to bring more yes. people into our party, right? They say, right. well, we only lost by 20,000 votes. We just need 20,000 more of our people right. to come out and vote, right? That's the, the ultimate really challenge of our, our time is that no one feels the need to really reevaluate whether what they're doing is okay or popular or successful because you even when you lose, it's not for long. And even if you do lose, it's not by many votes.
1: Really well put. And also okay. very scary, frankly. Yes, it is very scary. What you because, just laid out.
2: Because you're right. If you look at, I mean, Margaret, we all went through this together, um, though for us, we did it on Zoom. But um, <laughs> the uh, the 2020 election, right, where did we start 2020? The President of the United States was impeached at the beginning of yep. 2020. Then we moved to covid then we move to the uh, the economy. It looked like we could be entering a, a Great Depression. Uh, we then have the killing of George Floyd and the reaction to that. The president of the United States gets COVID and was very sick. Um, we have the Supreme Court justice dying just <laughs> weeks before the election. The president's job approval rating in January of 2020 was 45% in November of 2020. It was 45%, right? Like
1: you that what? Right? Amy like, Amy you're giving me PTSD from all the things, all the journalists listening right now are going, "Oh my god, <laughs> yes."
2: Don't let this
1: I don't want this to continue happening. But yeah. like give us a even, pause. Just
2: can we ever see so this like this the we have big swings with few voters? Yes. How about this as a good point though, as a maybe more optimistic issue, which is Despite all of this, there are still swing voters. Independent voters matter more than ever because they are the voters that are determining control. And for the most part, they are the moderating influences. Mm -hmm. Okay. They are the ones who, when one party gets too far out, when they see it overreaching, overextending, there are enough of those voters that prevent that party from staying in power or having total control right house senate and white house so it's not so even though it's only 20,000 votes or 50,000 votes whatever it is you can say well that's kind of scary because there's yeah. not that many or you can say well it's just that there still are people who are moderating influences it's just not as significant as it was in you know 1984 or something like that
1: So if we're dealing with a different sort of model here, should we throw out even the concept of a purple state, which is what people used to think of Florida as, right? Right. Is it now now just get rid of it?
2: um, No. I think (laughs) what we have to appreciate is that what purple means is not that the state is moderate. It's that there are really dark blue areas and really dark red areas and together they make purple, right? And so (laughs) if you live in a state where um, like Georgia Georgia is a perfect example of this, Um, a state with a big Metro center, right? Like Atlanta is that also continues to grow as the suburbs move further and further North and West and South, right? Like that Atlanta now is bigger than it's ever been. Um, So that's a blue area. And those areas outside of the city are getting bluer and darker that's what's balancing the really deep red in the rural areas of the state. So as long as those two sides turn out equally, the dark red and the dark blue, you're always going to have purple. The only way that one side or the other wins is that either, one, there's an imbalance, more dark blue that turn out than dark red, or that you have some of those light blue and light red counties on the outskirts right so it's not really rural it's not really urban it's in that weird sort of Mm -hmm. we're a exurb ish kind of area um those voters turning out or not turning out become the difference so i think what we have to think about is there they are truly purple there are true purple states as long as the balance between the blue and the red stay even and Georgia, Arizona, um, you know, Florida to a certain extent too. It's just that, um, and not to get too dorky and you can cut me off whenever you want, Margaret, <laughs> but like what makes the blue and purples what makes a difference between a purple state and a non purple state, I do really think are these big metro areas, right? Mm-hmm. So you have Washington, D.C. and Virginia, you have Atlanta and um, Georgia, you have Phoenix and Arizona. The reason that North Carolina is not purple and Florida is not purple, you don't have one just major metro and then areas around it, right? So there are not the, the dark blues are there aren't as many dark blue people, maybe is the way to put it, because you don't have that concentration of a big metro area.
1: So so tell me how anyway. you're thinking then about Nevada, for example. Um, right. You know, there's a lot of focus on two Sunbelt swing states, yep. Nevada and Georgia, yep. which you already mentioned. Yep. Are those the states that you are really focused on when it comes to yes. control of the Senate?
2: Yes. And Pennsylvania. Like if I could get, too. yeah, if I could get God to give me like a, cl- a clue as to who is going to win, or I could ask any question, which would, would be that really be your question would, yeah. yeah exactly that's my first point it's like what kind of weirdo that, <laughs> god, i get one question it's not about really why are we here it's who's gonna win a pennsylvania um, It's
1: herschel walker <laughs> yes exactly. <laughs> thoughts. exactly that's what
2: are your thoughts god give me give yeah. me the answer um yeah so those three are, are to me the the tightest of the tight, the closest of the close. If we on election night can call uh, Pennsylvania for the Democrat, okay, so John Fetterman wins, that means that even though Nevada and Georgia both held by Democratic incumbents, one of them can lose, and Democrats still have majority of uh, in the Senate because it's still a 50-50 Senate and Kamala Harris still breaks the tie. If uh, Republicans win Pennsylvania, then it does look as if that's the m- m- very difficult path for Democrats to keep the majority because they would need to win both Nevada and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can't, you know, so you can afford to lose one of your own if you get if you get Pennsylvania and, you know, Nevada isn't as we think of it as blue because um, presidential candidates have been, Democratic presidential candidates have been winning there for quite some time, mm-hmm. but by one or two points. So in in midterm years, Republicans have done quite well there uh, when the president's party is a is a as Demo- Democratic Party. So 2010, um, especially. Republicans did very well in Nevada that year, not doing as well at the presidential level. But to your point, what happens if every election is basically presidential level and it's everybody's deeply dug in red and blue? What makes Nevada even harder to judge is um, you have such a uh, transient population Right. Mm-hmm. people coming, going out of that state all the time. It's hard to get well known as a politician in that state because people are 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 literally, you know, thousands of new people
1: are coming in yeah. all the time. Um, one of the things I want to ask you before before we wrap is um, another factor you wrote about besides acts of God and just changes of who, who we are <laughs> and, and <laughs> right. how we function as a country.
2: Yeah. You
1: also wrote that for the first time. Um, anyone can remember in your business, a midterm election has become more than just a referendum on the person and party in the White House. Right. And the one issue you single out here is doing that is abortion. Right.
2: The challenge always for a party in the White House, and more specifically, a party that has the House, the Senate and the White House, is that um, they get, of course, all the blame when things go wrong, because, well, it's hard to blame Somebody who's not in charge for something that's happening, right? The other thing, and, and part of the reason that those in parties tend to lose midterm elections when they have all the branches of power, is because voters see them as overreaching, right? That they went and used their their try, you know, triumvirate um, to push their own partisan agendas, so. Remember, in 1994, there was the backlash on so-called Hillary care. So there was a health care debates there, as well as some of the issues like um, on gun control and gun reform issues. Um, There was was a backlash against Bill Clinton and his party. In 2010, the issue was, of course, Obamacare. In 2018, Republicans overreaching on trying to repeal Obamacare. Mm -hmm. So... That's usually the, the pattern. In this case, though, again, for the first time we can remember, it's actually not a stretch for the party in power to say, well, we're not the party that's actually going to extremes. We're not the party that's overreaching. It's the Republican Party. The Republican Party gave you this Supreme Court. The Republican Party's Supreme Court picks overturned Roe v. Wade. Republicans and state legislatures... Mm-hmm. And governors are signing restrictive abortion laws. Lindsey Graham would like to introduce or has introduced yeah. a national abortion law. Like, it's not us doing this. It is the other side. And it's pretty, it's, it's not theoretical. It's happening in real time. That on top of the fact that Donald Trump continues to be engaged in mm. politics. And he's another person that really animates, um, the Democratic coalition animates them by making them insanely Mm -hmm. (laughs) frustrated and angry and want to go out and vote. And um, again, it's not theoretical. What would it look like to have someone like Donald Trump in Congress, in the Senate? Well, we were there for four years. We know what that looks like. So that's where it's not um it's not as hard to make that case if you're democrats that there are actual consequences to your vote in a way that you know mm-hmm. is much harder to do when the out party is just sitting there going what we don't have anything to do We're, right. we've we been in the wilderness it's you guys that are passing all the bills not us
1: amy it's always good to talk it's to always you fun yeah it's always this i always feel great. smarter when i when i chat with you oh, thank you um, this was thank great. you for joining us and of thanks course. for for everyone listening on twitter spaces and this sunday and am nation we will have the full coverage of hurricane ian and the response to mm-hmm. it we'll speak to the director of fema and florida senator rick scott who i'm sure has a few thoughts on the race for the control of the senate
2: yeah, you made this with him last time, Margaret, that he came on with you and he keeps and he, saying yes. So good for you. I love it. Love it. Um, I was surprised like, as anyone. <laughs>
1: uh, well, see, that's a sign of respect. So good luck with that. I appreciate we'll anyone taking questions. All right. Until next time, Amy. Thanks for listening.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad free right now I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.
2: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you.